Well, it's New Year's Eve 2022. We made it, everyone. <laughs> so as we gather receipts and do an audit on times past while looking forward, I wanted to gather bits and pieces of the past year's conversations. I wanted to share my guests' brilliance and the places they took us that were profound, hilarious, and enlightening. So what did we talk about? We talked about bisexuality and coming out. Understanding happiness and all its elements. I got some undeniable wisdom from a retired sex worker. I also heard the warnings about the slow rot of American authoritarianism from a scholar. Talked about finding oneself and also how our biographies directly affect our biology. Learned that comedy and kindness are not mutually exclusive and dove into ayahuasca and meeting our shadows. Had fun with explaining that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is entirely based on trauma and truly realized that the right to shame-free sex is a right for all of us. So this podcast will continue to grow as well the Smart Funny Tortured brand and my dedication to using my story to help others. So if a particular clip from this omnibus episode caught your attention, go back, give it a full listen, and feel free to share. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Or better yet, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. This is where I take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for listening and being present while I found myself and I found my voice. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured, 2022. Happy New Year, everyone. The B and LGBTQ are for the most part invisible or dismissed. They have some of the highest rates of depression and suicide ideation on the LGBTQ spectrum and have special challenges in finding community as far as their sexual identity is concerned. And that is where my guest today comes in. His work has been published in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Washington Post, GQ, Vice, and so many more. He currently has a sex advice column at Men's Health titled Sexplain It and a relationship column at Queer Majority titled Zack in the City. Along with being a Brooklyn-based columnist, he is a sex expert and an activist whose work focuses on sexuality and the LGBTQ community. And he's also probably one of the most prolific contemporary voices out there today on bisexuality. It's a fascinating topic, perfect for this podcast. And it's also very personal. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with Zachary Zane. And when I told people I was bisexual for the first time, no one believed me ever and always assumed I was using it as a stepping stone to being gay. And now I am famously bisexual and still people think I'm gay. Is famouslybisexual.com taken? Yeah, I really need to take it. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, no, it, it's incredible. Just the freedom, the lack of judgment, the ability to experiment and explore without an element of shame and knowing that if you explore or experiment, and you don't like it, that doesn't make you any less straight. It doesn't make you any less gay. It doesn't make you anything less 
anything, right? Because I think there's this idea, especially among straight men, if you explore, you try like, oh, maybe I'm into guys. You try to have sex with you have sex with a guy once, like, hey, I'm not into it. It's like, oh no, that label will follow you. You are closeted, you are gay, you are bi for the rest of your life. And I think we're now realizing, at least the younger generation is giving people the freedom to explore in a way that we were not given that freedom. This is an interesting podcast for me, and I don't know if anybody's ever done this to you, but I'm going to openly discuss me coming out as a bisexual man on this podcast. This is where it happens. Um, I've discussed it with my wife, and there are those in my close circle around me, but I have lived that shame path. There was an exercise. Right now, I'm currently training to be a crisis advocate at the LGBTQ Center here in Las Vegas. Mm. And there was an exercise where you, you had a star and you write down best friend, family member, community, job, and then your hopes and dreams. And when it got to community, I drew a big zero with a line through it. I've been in so many communities, but never felt like I was a part of those communities. And that was fine. That was sustaining for a period of time up until now when it's like, okay, let's just just get this shit out of the way and move on. And like I said, my daughter has been the hero. I walk in her shadow when I see, when I see that kind of thing. And it's contributed to a lot. It's contributed to probably battling chronic illness, the depression that I have had, the challenges, you know, moving up to that. So seeing some of your writings and seeing some of these numbers Validation is seeing that the highest number of depression and anxiety is within this particular subset of the LGBTQIA plus continuum. I'm like, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. I'm really proud of you for coming out on the show. I, I didn't realize that when you had kind of messaged me that it was not a public thing. So I, I know that takes that takes a lot. Yeah. Um, um, I cannot speak more highly of my wife, who's known from day one. I always made a pact with myself that if I was dating a woman, that this would be disclosed before anything became serious. She has been an amazing best friend and supporter of this. As we get closer to me doing this, I told her yesterday, I'm talking to Zachary Zane and this, and she's like, go for it. And, and, and I'm like, is this, is this bringing us closer? There have been physical and mental and emotional (laughs) carnage from this, of keeping this internal. And, um, and as I, you know, hit this milestone and then see my daughter and begin to have these dialogues and have these friends that are, it's like, okay, Chamberlain, let's do, let's do the next 50 years authentically. And so that's why, you know, this crisis advocacy work um, yeah. really means a lot to me and taking my story and being there. So, so yeah, um, I'm kind of this season of the podcast embracing my own brand and not doing the typical, hi, let me interview you and this like this. I'm just going to stick myself in there and, uh, and see what happens. Throw, th- throw it over the fence. I love that. That's really exciting. I- I'm sure it's going to be overwhelmingly positive with a few fuckers in between. One could definitely make the argument that these are not happy times. You could also argue the inverse, that we are all looking forward to being happier as soon as we possibly can. My guest today literally wrote the book, or rather books, on that very topic. He is an author and lecturer. He taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history, 
positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. His books have been translated into more than 30 languages and have appeared on bestseller lists around the world. His latest books are Happiness Studies and Happier No Matter What. He consults and lectures to executives in multinational corporations, the general public, and at-risk populations. The topics he lectures on include leadership, education, ethics, politics, happiness, self-esteem, resilience, goal-setting, and mindfulness. He is the co-founder and chief learning officer of the Happiness Studies Academy and Potential Life. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with Tal Ben-Shahar. I know you get asked a lot, what is happiness? But what really intrigued me about, about your work was particularly the pursuit of happiness and kind of the, the paradoxical nature of that. I wanted to ask you, what is happiness not? <laughs> yeah, so the first thing that happiness is not, it's not pleasure uh, or it's not just pleasure. And moreover, it's not a, an incessant and unbroken continuum of pleasurable emotions. Happiness is also struggling and happiness is also about hardship and, and sadness. That's all part and parcel of a, of a full and happy life. I love one of the quotes that I found that you said was happiness is the place between meaning and pleasure. Yeah. So um, what we need to add to the, to the happiness equation, among other things, is the idea of meaning. Because um, you know, that, that, that is one of the things that defines us. As, as humans, you know, we're not just about pleasurable sensations. We're about finding meaning, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our work, whether it's in, in the world, in life in general. So it's about finding meaning, the meaning of life when we can, and more importantly, find the meaning in life, in our day-to-day experiences. But you can continually be happier indefinitely, correct? And that's a very important point, uh, Paul, that, um, that, that I emphasize to myself uh, as well as to my, my students. You know, many people come to me and say, Tal, all right, so 30 years in this field, you know, you've read so much, you've written about it so much. Are you finally happy now? Yeah. And my answer to that is, I don't know how to even begin to answer that question because I don't think there is a point before which one is unhappy, after which one is happy. In other words, it's not a binary zero one. Instead, it's a continuum. So yes, today I'm a lot happier than I was 30 years ago. Um, At the same time, I certainly hope that uh, five years from now, I'll be happier than I am today. The pursuit of happiness is a lifelong journey. And it's a journey that ends when life ends. The one thing that most of us have in common is when we come across someone possessing almost incandescent authenticity and positivity, it's seen as a curiosity, an outlier. And then when those qualities seem impossible for that person to possess due to their life story or job, we become even more fascinated. My guest today is a retired sex worker turned serial entrepreneur. Through sheer resourcefulness, fearlessness, and grit, She's grown her personal brand into a budding enterprise with over a million followers across multiple platforms while employing several creatives and becoming an advocate for her industry and the health and welfare of those who work in it. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with Riley Rabbit. 
you got to find things that are beautiful in people. You know what I mean? Like there's hundreds of thousands of girls who escort, right? That man chose you to come see and spend time with. Why would you think he's gross? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Wow. Like, why would you look at him like he's a horrible person? Something about you is so fascinating that he's going to spend his fucking check on you. And he wants to spend time with you and connect with you. And you're being a bitch to him. That doesn't make any sense. Like, it's, it, I just don't get it. But I guess that's why I'm probably more successful than other people, so... Yeah, I think that that is a great deal. <laughs> Those kinds of attitudes in any business will help any you. Any business. I mean, even when I was in Verizon, right? Like we had sales sharks. They just would not try to connect with humans at all. It was just like, how much can you rip out of them? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, but now they're back in a month complaining because they can't afford any of that because you didn't listen to what their needs were. I'm all for selling whatever you can get out of somebody. Cool, get your money. But at some point it's going to backfire when you're being greedy. It always happened. Every month you'd have like these chargebacks from these high selling people. And you're like, cause you're a dick and you weren't actually listening to what anybody needed. And it, it makes a difference in all, in all aspects of life. Seems like the super villain of what you guys do is shame. For sure. And when did you shake that? When did that no longer become an issue or was it ever issue? Is that the thing that gets <laughs> most people in this and just wears them down as they cannot get over their own shame? Mm-hmm. I believe so. And I think what they start doing is they start doing, they start having substance abuse issues because they're trying to numb that feeling so they could get the job done. I didn't ever drink or do drugs or anything with my clients. Like I never did any of that because to me, for what? I'm not numbing anything. I want to enjoy your company. I want you to enjoy me. I want us to have a good time. And I want us to both leave here with what we came to get. And there's so many girls and guys out here that are just, like I said, they're, they're doing it because somebody told them they can make a buck. Is that a common story? Do you see that a lot? I see it a lot. Um, it's funny because now that I'm doing this side of it, it's 50-50. Like uh -huh. before, I seemed, I felt like it was a lot worse. Like I felt like it was like somebody convinced them that they should do this and they got stuck. And like now that I'm on um, this side of it and I'm actually able to like vocalize it, I think the girls who are more on my side feel like, oh yeah, let's empower girls and they're with it. Like I just interviewed this girl, Stella Andrews. She went to school for business. She got into it a little bit later too. And she just got straight into the porn game. Her parents are in financial. And she's like, no, I, and you know, I think they always knew that I wasn't a rule follower, but I wasn't like a slut. But at the same time, I got business done and I took care of it. And I think like the more that I bring girls on like that and more people like that, it just, it's starting to soften it for the, for the other girls. I did run into it a lot in the beginning. Like, oh, you know, I got with this pimp and he told me, and I was young, I was 17 and. I feel like there's going to be girls who are going to do it regardless if somebody pushed them into it or not. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's just who they are. And I feel like embracing that side of them is, is a big deal. And so start owning it. It's kind of sad that a lot of girls feel so shamed all the time. It's everywhere. But I feel like if there was ever a time to be a hoe, it's now. Or like, you know, or be in the adult industry because we're finally starting to have, we don't just have Marilyn Monroe as like this sexy person. Now we have Coco Austin, who started off as an escort. We have Amber Rose, started off as a stripper. Cardi B, stripper escort. Megan Thee Stallion, stripper escort. Like, so we're starting to have these like very strong, influential women who are in the adult industry and they're very outspoken and women are owning their sexuality. And I think it's helping a lot. So if there was ever a time for my show to work, it's now. If yeah. I tried to do this like five years ago, I think I would have hit a brick wall. My guest today darkly refers to herself 
as a nonfiction horror writer. That description, while hilarious, is spot on. She's also a journalist, holds a PhD in anthropology, and a master's in Central Eurasian studies focusing on the authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union. Her two books, The View from Flyover Country and Hiding in Plain Sight, are celebrated bestsellers and must-reads for anyone wanting to understand the decline and abandonment of the heartland and the machinations behind the eventual ascension of kleptocracy in the form of the Trump family. Her upcoming book, They Knew, explores the United States' culture of conspiracy. She is also the co-host of Gaslit Nation, a weekly podcast which covers corruption in all things Trump and the rise of authoritarianism around the world. She is someone I've admired for quite some time and was on my original guest wish list when I started this podcast. Because despite all the bylines and numerous television appearances handing out undeniable truths about racism, xenophobia, the state of media, and voting rights, she's also a thoughtful artist, a rabid Guns N' Roses fan, and a mom who enjoys life's simple pleasures in her beloved adopted hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with Sarah Kenzior. I was first introduced to you in a viral video, and it was you <laughs> delivering your extemporaneous ass-kicking against the Breitbart editor. Oh, yeah, in 2016. <laughs> in 2016. We welcome all voices on Breitbart, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one, I, I do think it matters what your editorial makeup is, and I think that if our media wasn't dominated by white men, you might see different coverage, um, different concerns being emphasized. But I think the most important thing is what is the result of this coverage. It doesn't matter, you know, who is working there. If you're putting out anti-Semitic content, anti-Muslim content, anti-Black content, conspiracy theories, things that lead to actual hate crimes, things that lead to physical assault, things that lead to kids in schools getting bullied right now as a result of this rhetoric. The rhetoric matters. Whether you say it, you're just kidding, whether you say that, oh, well, you know, somebody of this ethnicity or race works there, that doesn't matter. What matters is who gets hurt. And the obligation of a journalist is to serve the public. The obligation of a politician is to serve the public. And the public is not getting served. The public is being served conspiracy theories and hate rhetoric. And it's leading to actual repercussions that are terrible for a democracy and that have hurt people badly and i don't think that journalists are doing their job standing up for the most vulnerable citizens which is absolutely what their priority should be and so was it kind of the conflagration of that and then the publishing of flyover country when you kind of exploded onto the scene because i mean that thing is still got more than a brene brown ted talk on youtube <laughs> it's everywhere and it's brilliant and the first thing you go after is privileged white men in that and set the tone. So was that the flashpoint for you? I mean, that was a very popular video. It coincided with me writing an article um, for the previously existing uh, outlet to correspondent saying we're headed into dark times. And I wrote that about you know, a week after Trump uh, was elected in, in 2016. And so those things came out kind of at once, um, at a point where a lot of people, of course, were shocked by the election result, and they did not think that Trump would win. And I did think he would win, you know, in part through stealing. Um, and, you know, I, I predicted a lot of elements of this, and I understood what was happening with Trump and Russia, with Trump and the economy, with, with a lot of different facets. It's like, you know, every awful thing I'd ever studied in my career kind of coincided at once in Donald Trump in 2016. So it's a very strange 
moment for me, but it was also strange in that a lot of the things that I ended up talking about, um, you know, in kind of larger forums were the same topics that were in View from Flyover Country, which were essays that I had written between 2012 and 2014. It's just that people didn't want to believe that I, what I was saying was true or real. And then of course I went through that again with hiding in plain sight and now I'm probably going to yeah. go through it again with, they knew there's always like a, I don't know, a two to three year lag time between what I say being perceived as, you know, lunatic or exaggerated, and then eventually being accepted as conventional wisdom. Like, you know, that that's just how it goes over and over again. Um, but yeah, that was a really, it was a really weird time. And I wasn't thinking very much about like my career or anything at all. I, I was just very, very worried about what was going to happen to our country. And I saw that period between, you know, November 2016 and inauguration in 2017 as particularly fraught because there were a lot of, um, you know, illicit uh, activities surrounding that election, some of which were called out in advance by people like Harry Reid, uh, you know, who had announced in, in August of that year that, you know, Russia had the capacity to change the actual vote tallies. I mean, there are so many things going on that I thought it is possible that maybe uh, this guy won't get into office, but they're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure he does. Um, and even if, you know, these things get revealed quickly and they should have been revealed in real time as the election went along, you know, by our officials, by the Obama administration or, or um, others who had the capacity to do that, you know, they're, they're still going to fight to the better end. That's what Trump always does. That's how I knew he would never accept the 2020 results if they said he lost. I, I knew there would be an attempted coup. I knew there would be an attempted attack. That's just how he operates. And so I was just worried about survival. And I was getting a lot of um, death threats. I mean, people don't know this. Um, I think I've mentioned it maybe briefly in hiding in plain sight, but you know, my my bodyguard at that conference was off stage while I was on stage with the Breitbart guys because I had gotten so many death threats, very serious death threats, that for the first time in my life, like I had to have undercover armed security by my side um, in the hotel I was staying at had to make me food individually uh, in case there was poisoning. I mean, it was wow. really scary. And I didn't talk about it as it was happening. I mean, like, why would I? Um, that just makes the problem worse. Uh, but that's the kind of thing I was thinking about um, in terms of a personal stuff, definitely not like books or career things. And in terms of, you know, the future, I was just very frightened for our country and kind of wondering what did it mean that they were able to to pull this off because I was, you know, screaming into the void for most of 2016 warning of this outcome. And so were, you know, several other people, like sometimes it's presented as if I was completely alone in this, like I wasn't, you know, there weren't that many of us, but there are definitely, you know, quite a few people, all of whom had expertise um, in authoritarianism and rising autocracy and how it how democracies die, basically. And we were all saying the same thing. And so I'm like, if this was able to happen, it was because other people allowed it to happen. And that is the topic that needs to be explored more. And it never fully was, because that's the most uncomfortable topic of all, I think. You're a full-grown adult, and I'm not your mom, and I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to do my job, and my job is studying authoritarian movements, and that's been my job for 20 years. So I don't know why in the world you think I should just be delivering you, you know, positive vibes about like the latest fascist upheaval. Like it's very weird. I don't think men get that kind of blowback. Although I have talked to some men 
about this who are experts and they definitely they got um a lot of shit for it too you know somebody like tim snyder um jared yates sexton my guest today is john kim also known as the angry therapist to hundreds of thousands of followers on social media he's a licensed therapist and life coach he's also a successful serial entrepreneur as co-founder of TatLab and Lumia Coach Training. He's also a best-selling author. John's books include The Angry Therapist's No BS Guide to Finding and Living Your Own Truth, Single on Purpose, and my personal favorite, I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck, and Every Man's Guide to a Meaningful Life. So I'm going to do something different here, and I'm going to tell you how I first met John Kim. It was October of 2019, and I was walking through the Burbank Airport, and my eye caught a stack of books in the airport bookstore where I saw John's book, I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck. And never have I identified with the title of the book so much in my life as I did in that moment. And so why was I a miserable fuck? Well, we have to go back to a warm May morning in 2017, almost five years ago to the day, where I was standing on the edge of the four-story El Cortez Hotel parking structure in downtown Las Vegas, ready to kill myself. This was the morning after the opening night of the Crapshoot Comedy Festival. It was the second national comedy festival my beautiful wife and I had produced. So as I stood there, I was rescued by memory flashes of my kids and family. I eventually stepped down and realized that this would be in poor taste for the remaining nights of a comedy festival to have the executive producer commit suicide. So why was I up on that ledge? The three-day festival, while a critical success, was turning into a slow-rolling financial disaster. In the run-up, it was going to be the last chance to redeem myself in the eyes of so many, including my wife. I threw big and crapped out. I lost dear friendships and industry peers as a result of compromising my integrity in recklessly trying one more time to be worthy and respected. So bankrupt and broken on the eve of turning 50, it was around my birthday a month later where I came close to offing myself again. And that is when my wife had had enough. The years of drinking, being detached, mounting debt, and dancing around what was really wrong between us led to a separation that summer. So long story short, by the end of 2017, through sheer hustle, fear, and the belief of a now dear friend and colleague that I still had some creative miles left, I secured a well-paying gig that would change our financial fortunes and make everything right. Except it didn't. Even though my family were all back together, I was still lost. Playing the victim and living in quiet shame. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I was suffering from undiagnosed Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr. They were causing chronic pain that mostly went away conveniently at the downing of increasing amounts of red wine. 
So by 2019, my wife was ready to throw the towel in again. And in a small part of me, so was I. But a bigger part believed that real redemption was possible. And it was around that same time I was walking through the Burbank airport. In John's book, I read about his divorce, his fall from grace, and how he found his way back to a meaningful life. His book was one of the many signposts that helped me find a path to the health and true happiness I enjoy today with my wife and kids by my side. At the end of the interview you're about to hear, I shared with John the story I just shared with you. I wanted to thank him and let him know how his book impacted me. He encouraged me to keep that part in because my story is not my story anymore. I'm finding that it's the story of a lot of people who need to hear that it is possible to not just survive, but thrive. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with John Kim. One of the things that is a key differentiator for you is that when you did become a therapist, you kind of bucked the system and was not going to take that corner office with the silver pendulum balls and seeing patients fight. You were meeting them where they needed to be. Yeah, it's interesting because um, my uh, image of successful was the um, what society thought was successful. And, you know, um, when we see therapists on like TV shows, they're always you know in these huge lofts and and um and you know in like in new york it's like that's not how we how that's not how it is you know they're they're very portrayed as very kind of sexy and i thought that's what a, a therapist's career should look like and then once i started to work in a way that i thought was more honest to me um that became a poster uh that became more of something that was laminated and shiny and not my truth. And the more I start to listen to myself, my solid self, what emerged was uh, what you're saying is like, um, yeah, this uh, crazy Korean therapist in LA with a broken heart, um, meeting people at coffee shops on his Harley and doing couple sessions in the park and blogging and kind of being transparent and showing himself that. that. And so what emerged from that was, um, actually everything i mean that gave me the cape that gave, and i didn't do it i didn't sit down and say like what's my brand you know the promise i made to myself after my divorce was i don't have much i don't have friends i don't have money i don't have you know i'm just starting everything brand new um one promise i'm going to make to myself is i'm going to start making decisions that are honest to me and so because i held that with two hands in my career the more i did that the more i actually got traction so whether that is on social media book deals and you know other things they came from that if i was wearing a shirt and tie and had the uh nondescript office with the bad art and the little waterfall in the corner um i i don't think i would be well first of all i wouldn't be happy i would just it would you know it would yeah. be punching a clock not yeah. the sky and then i and I, I don't think i'd be happy and then and then i don't think i would be quote unquote successful uh, because there would be nothing really unique or different about me I would just be another uh, uh, cardboard cutout, you know. What do you think? I mean, is self the most important thing? That seems to be the, the overarching theme through all of your books. It's like, look, just stop, examine, cool your jets, 
and find out who you are before you do X, Y, Z. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. And it's not finding out who you are because like happy, I don't know if that is, you know, a light switch or I think it's, uh, I think us discovering who we are is uh, for the rest of your life until we die. And then who knows afterwards. Right. So, um, it's turning your dial to curiosity, compassion, and establishing a better relationship with yourself, you know, always exploring, uh, looking inward, um, being curious about, what, what you do and why. Um, I think it's that um, when people say, you know, figure out who you are. I don't know. It sounds like a combination lock <laughs> that needs yeah. to be. You know, it, 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 I don't think it's like that. I think, um, you know, that journey is ongoing until we take our last breath. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. It's like, how do you do that? It's a, that, that's a huge concept. And that's, a, you know, it's almost a throwaway line. Find out who you are, you know, find your true self. How do you do that? What is the first step? I think for me, the first step was, um, like, like I just said uh, earlier, start making decisions that are honest to you instead of uh, exchanging your truth for membership. I did a lot of that in my 20s and 30s, especially growing up in L.A. and, you know, um, being a, a screenwriter. Um, I would lie. I would sell my soul. I would, you know, um, do things that made me feel slippery and gross to chase that shiny thing. Integrity. Stopping that. Retain your integrity. Get it back. Yeah, and also keep promises that you've made to yourself. Yeah. If they're important to you. I think it's fair to say that one area of our life where we find ourselves tortured is when we have to navigate the traditional American medical system for ourselves or a loved one. That feeling we are only to be quickly seen, prescribed, and dispatch to the next doctor, test, or calendar year. But imagine having a doctor who listened to you, who was inquisitive from the start to not only know about your condition, but you as a person, who embraced your story with love and compassion to not only treat you with conventional medicine, but also applying other modalities of medicine that acknowledge what the body and mind is capable of when we feel safe, heard, and genuinely taken care of. Well, that type of doctor exists, and he's my guest today, Dr. Habib Sadegi. He's the founder of Beehive of Healing, an integrative medical center based in Los Angeles. He specializes in multidisciplinary treatment for chronic illnesses that include osteopathic, anthroposophical, environmental, psychosomatic, family, and German new medicine, as well as clinical pharmacology. He served as an attending physician and clinical facilitator at UCLA Santa Monica Medical Center and is currently a clinical instructor of family medicine at Western University of Health Sciences. He is the author of two books, The Clarity Cleanse, 12 Steps to Finding Renewed Energy, Spiritual Fulfillment, and Emotional Healing, and Within, A Spiritual Awakening to Love and Weight Loss. Dr. Sudegi is also a regular contributor to Goo, CNN, BBC News, and The Huffington Post, and is the publisher of the health and well-being journal, Megazen. So, Full disclosure, Dr. Sadegi is my doctor. You'll hear my story and how I ended up in his care. And sorry to say that it's an all too common scenario for a lot of people. And also, little heads up, this is the first interview I've done in person for the podcast. No Zoom. Dr. Sadegi was insistent that we both share the same space. Didn't think that there was a safer place that I could talk to him. So there's a small issue with my mic. 
and it has me sounding a little subpar. So apologies for that, but my guest sounds great. So enjoy. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with Dr. Habib Sadegi. I have taken an oath and I'm for decency and transparency and integrity. I'm against anything that takes the power away from a patient. All for empowering a patient, asking the right questions. How is it that I've ended up with this particular disease? What I'm against uh, is uh, I'm against uh, a person coming in and they're overweight and they're working nonstop and they cannot sit still, and they're constantly moving here and there, and they have high blood pressure, and we put them on one or two or three or four medication to lower their blood pressure. Instead of just asking, where are these tensions coming from? Why are you out of blue? You're hypertensive. You know, what I'm against is um, just the madness that a person comes in and they're, you know, they have depression or they have various different things. And we've, we've forgotten to ask questions of where did it start? What was the journey like? What have you gone through? What I'm against is really looking at a human being as a robot and not recognizing that our biographies become our biologies. There was a report that came out um, um, early, I think it was either early 2020 or 2019. It may have even been back to uh, 2016. But it was um, a couple of um, really heavy-duty financial advisors from Goldman Sachs. And, and the cliff note version of that extensive article was that... Um, Good medicine is bad business. The entire traditional medical model is set up such that you go in, your cholesterol is high. Right now, um, your, your doctor, your internist, your family doctor basically says, well, you got to take this medication for the rest of your life. Just throw you on stat. That's it. Yeah. And now if you ask them, you say, well, what, what's, what, what exactly you know, what's the dance? Why is my cholesterol high? What, do I need cholesterol? They said, no, you don't need it. Too, too much cholesterol kills you. They don't tell you that cholesterol is the mother molecule of all the sex hormones. Everything from pregnenolone, from, you know, DHEA, testosterone, progesterone, est various different forms of estrogens. So you, all these people that they're coming in and they're on all these medications to lower their, their cholesterol. And then you look at their sex hormone, it's completely dried out and they're complaining of, you know, low libido. And what do they do? They put them on a particular medication that they have to take 90 minutes before in order to force enough blood and engorge into the genitals so that they can have a force erection and have, you know, and have sex with their partners, right? This is a cosmic joke. If you really think about it, it's a cosmic joke. Instead of saying, wait, 
I think you're not eating healthy or you have excessive amount of cortisol and you have, you, you know, you're not doing enough physical activity. And this is the reason that you have these tiny holes in each cell. And that's why your, your body, the intelligence of your body is increasing your cholesterol to really plug all these holes so that you'll be able to survive. See, cholesterol, a high level of cholesterol, there's got to be a reason for it. So instead of putting people on medication, asking the right questions and supporting them, setting them up so that they can actually be empowered, taking their lives back to have agency in one's life, especially when it comes to the physical health, I think it's a human right. It really is. And the current traditional medical model has taken that away from all of us. Today's guest is a mensch. That wonderful Yiddish term, mensch, is defined as a person who can be relied upon to act with honor and integrity. Someone who's kind and considerate, admired within the small circle of those who know them well. Well, that small circle includes people like Jimmy Fallon, Chelsea Handler, Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, and so many more. I have personally witnessed the biggest stars in comedy stopping in their tracks to hug and chat with my guest, while the craziness of a red carpet swirls around them. He was a former cosmetic dentist and clinical professor at New York University, where he taught and lectured for 12 years. He's the author of eight books, three on comedy and five on motivation and happiness, and he's the host of Comedy Matters TV, a YouTube channel sporting millions of views along with being a regular on Sirius XM's Bennington Show. He's a survivor of both a Widowmaker heart attack and the deadly New York City 2020 COVID wave that almost took him out. He's battled his own demons, which only seemed to make him more empathetic, quirky, and generous. He was there when I was battling mine and stood by when others didn't. And I'll never forget that. He's one of the kindest and most interesting people I've ever met. And now you get that pleasure as well. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with Jeffrey Gurian. I want to talk about the comedy stuff and, and expose people to one, the, the aura around you. And then when you meet Jeffrey Gurian for the first time or you see him off in the distance at an event, that's something that that is that deserves its own discussion that I want to go into. But, you know, being that this podcast is called Smart, Funny, Tortured, and you check all those boxes, it's the tortured part that keeps coming up. And, you know, just recently you were hospitalized for pneumonia due to COVID. Mm. And then we go back to a young child is stuttering. You're in recovery. You um, You do a lot of work with the program. And you had a heart attack that should have taken you out. And yet you still immerse yourself in the world of comedy with this tenacity that is almost superhuman. And so was there always something there that kept the drive in place? Or now that you're sitting here today going, all right, this is how I'm going to process all the things that came before me. What kept you going through things that would have taken one person out and they would have tapped out. I have to say it was my spiritual background, understanding that every single thing that happens to me is my path, whether I label it good or bad, 
when you, when you look back in your past, you know, I use an example that's very personal because I believe that it's important to share personal things. Anybody could share things that are easy to say. So I went through a divorce that was very painful because I have two little children that I love more than anything in the world. And um, the woman that I had been married to went on to remarry and adopted two children and had one child of her own. And I use that as, as an example because those two little children needed to be adopted and that little girl needed to be born. And that couldn't have happened had I still been there. And a lot of times th those things only have, you can only see them in retrospect. When I had a heart attack, it came out of nowhere. The night before I was with the Sirius XM people, we were partying, partying, we were having a great time. The next day in the middle of the day, I get this weird heart attack that they called a widowmaker heart attack. I was like 95% blocked in the major artery to my heart. I had never been sick a day in my life, seriously. And I was joking with the surgeon on the operating table when they finally, it's a crazy story how it happened. And I'll tell you if we have time, but when I was on the operating table, I wasn't completely asleep and I felt them unplugging my heart. And I said to the surgeon, I feel you in my heart, not in a romantic way, but I feel you in my heart. And the whole surgical team started to laugh. I think they probably, it was probably the first time that a guy in heart surgery was joking with the team. And, and he said, I'll give you more anesthetic. And he came to my room about five o'clock that day. And he said, I need to give you a hug because you're a miracle. And I said, no, you're the miracle. You're the guy that figured out how to save me. And I was back on stage five days later at New York Comedy Club. And the owner of the club, Emilio, said to me, what are you, crazy? You just had a heart attack. And I was like, yeah, but it's hard to get a spot here. I'm like, yeah, I can breathe. Maybe it's not COVID because I knew people were dying because they couldn't breathe. Yeah. Paul, I was so sick. I had never been that sick in my life. And when you talk about suicide, it's a horrible thing to say. No one should ever say that lightly. The night before I went to the hospital, I was on my terrace wondering whether I'd have the courage to jump off. That's how sick I was. I couldn't take the pain anymore. And I too, I thought of my children and I'm like, no, you're going to go to sleep and in the morning you'll call an ambulance. I didn't want to call an ambulance in the middle of the night because that was too scary for me. I couldn't do it. But I prepared to do it in the morning. And that morning when I woke up, I dragged myself to the shower. I'm like, and I, and this is the insanity of comedy. I started thinking, what should I wear to go to the hospital? Because <laughs> if you know me, you know, it's ridiculous. I obsess over what I'm wearing all the time. Appearance exactly. is, is insane, right? So I'm, I'm debating, what should I wear to go to the hospital? How can I figure out what to wear? So I, I, I tell myself. Well, there's well, going to be coverage. There's going to, I mean, you know, God well, forbid there's cameras there. There could be. So, so I'm saying, well, okay, I have to wear something that comes off easily. They're going to have to take my blood pressure. So I wore track pants and I wore sneakers and I wore some. And it was the middle of winter. It was freezing, but I didn't wear a winter coat. I wore something light. And you did your hair. Of course, I did my hair first. Yeah, that's the first thing I did. I'm like, how can I leave the house? Yeah. And, you know, when I had the heart attack, I almost didn't go in the street because it was pouring rain. And I don't go out in the rain because of my hair, as stupid as that sounds. And it's a lucky thing I did because I could have just died at home because of my hair. I went out in the street. 
And that's how I wound up getting to the hospital. And oh. for the listener, please check out Jeffrey's hair. It is it is legendary and it is iconic. So, uh, yes, it is how he is recognized in a crowd of hundreds. <laughs> I once walked into Radio City and there was a comedian on stage. And I don't know if you know how big Radio City is. It's a huge room. And the comedian on stage shouted me out. And I came in through the back door. I was still at the back of the place. And I said to him afterwards, how'd you see me? He goes, what are you kidding? Who could miss you? <laughs> couldn't believe it that's what happened to me in the very first time i saw you was in montreal at just for laughs 2013 it was before maui i i was gonna say i remember that you were planning uh yeah. a festival in maui yeah it was, it was before the maui comedy festival and you were running around with the comedy uh with comedy matters mike bag slung over your shoulder interviewing all the comics and every time you walked up to a comic they knew immediately who you were and they greeted you with a hug and somebody's like that's jeffrey gurin he's he is always here he is a is a staple and then we met you you had a great deal of interest as everybody did at the time of wait there's a festival going on in maui i need to be a part of this and the the kindness and the interest and the support that I immediately received from you was never forgotten. And, you know, that carried through to 2017 when we did Crapshoot in Vegas. I said to myself and I said to my wife, who was my partner in that festival, in order for this to be a real festival, Jeffrey Gurian needs to be here. And as God is my witness, Dave Attell, who was our headliner on the first night, walks into a green room and sees you and says, oh, my God, it, this, is an, this is a real festival. There's Jeffrey Gurian. And George Wallace came in and hugged you and you guys all took pictures together. When does that. Or let me let me rephrase that in in your documentary, you lament Sometimes, and this was the quote, sometimes I feel like an observer watching my own life. And how can you know all these famous people and be involved in so many things over the decades and still not be a household name? Do you still feel that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me. And thank you for what you said, because it just happened again. When I just got back from Montreal and Amy Schumer said that when she saw me, she didn't talk to anybody but me. She wasn't doing any interviews. But when she saw me, she said, come, I'll talk to you at the cocktail party. And the first thing she said was, now I know it's a festival now that I see you. And those are very kind things to say. Um, I can't really explain it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a household name. I'm more of what you would call an industry name, which is what I learned a long time ago, that there are certain people that are known within the industry. Um, and I'm Yeah, always... you are a household name. I mean, if you are in comedy, you know who Jeffrey Gurian is. And you want you want a hug and you want Jeffrey Gurian to know who you are. I, I learned that very quickly. And you know that Joe Coy, I just did a, an interview with Joe Coy, and he said in the interview, he goes, I've hugged you 10 times already today. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I love that. I really love that. And maybe it has to do with energy. You know, I go through life thinking that I love everybody until they teach me not to. I'm a people person. I love people. And I, 
And I love, especially I love people that work hard and, and are successful because it's so hard to become successful in comedy. And in all the years, you know, I was a comedy journalist since 1999. And I'm known, I've never written a bad thing about anybody because if you have a bad set or you do a bad show, I, I don't want to publicize that. I just don't write about it. I don't write that you had a good show if you had a bad show. I just leave it out. People feel that they can trust me because I'm supportive. I support people who work hard because I know how hard it is to make a name for yourself. And I think people have said that's one of the reasons that people talk to me on the red carpet, that they come over um, because they know that they can trust me with their persona, that I won't put them in an awkward situation, that I won't try to get a scoop. Like Jerry Seinfeld asked me to keep a secret that he was doing his Netflix special at the comic strip. I did the book on the comic strip with Chris Rock. Chris wrote the introduction to it. And Jerry's Netflix special was all about his early days. From 1976 to 1980, he spent those four years at the comic strip as a host. And he works out mostly at Gotham Comedy Club. That's his favorite club to work out. But he wanted to do his special where he started. And I came in one night with George Wallace, who is Jerry's best friend and is a very dear friend of mine. Again, I was just with him in Montreal. And uh, Jerry said, please keep it a secret. Now, it would have been a great scoop for me if I brought that out, but I don't do stuff like that. It's not important to me. It's more important to protect people and to keep a trust. And so I, I didn't tell anybody for about three months. And he was very grateful. And he thanked me for that. My guest today is a woman of exceptional power, perspective, and wisdom. She's an 18-year veteran of plant medicines, meaning she's been traditionally trained to administer the psychedelic medicinal brew, ayahuasca, and the botanical cousin of peyote, huachuma, or San Pedro. She's an integration coach, and her expertise extends to the crises of the soul and addiction recovery. She's an author with her first book out, the Plant Medicine Mystery School, Volume 1, Superhero Healing Powers of Psychotropic Plants. She's also a certified death doula, honored to help people make peace with the inevitable and beautiful transition into the afterlife. She's also another member of the Save Paul team in that she was there at the beginning of my journey to where I am today. I remember the first time I spoke with her, I thought I would be going to see her in person and have to walk through a beaded doorway into a cloud of incense. Yeah, that's how cynical and naive I was. What happened is that I sat in my car, in a parking lot, in a Vegas downpour, talking to a woman who told me it was going to be okay, by instilling in me confidence through her own story of redemption and purpose. An hour and a half later, I was in and about to enter the world of Pachamama, Mother Ayahuasca, with her as my guide. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, Funny, Tortured, with Cat Courtney. You've seen some remarkable transformations. Um, I, don't, I don't want to focus on the testimonials like, and you too can enjoy this kind of success, but you've seen some stuff that has really anecdotally blown you away. Um, 
one in particular, and I can also take this out if you don't want to talk about it, but the one that is that has stayed with me was the UFC fighter who didn't fight anymore. Can yeah. we can we talk yeah. about that in a in, in a surface and you know without getting into it? But I mean, you've dealt with people who have their whole identity rested on their dysfunction, and then they gave themselves to the ceremony, to the process, to the medicine, and found another path. I love this, Paul, because this is one of the reasons why people are afraid to dive into something that is transformational is what's going to change? Am I, am I going to have to leave my partner or leave my job? And what I always say to that is, if that comes in, it's because it's true. It's because it, you're not happy. And this guy, the UFC fighter, was miserable. He was a good fighter damn good fighter, but he was miserable. And what the medicine said to him is, would you rather be happy or would you rather be good at what you're doing? And he chose happiness, which means after working with the medicine, he decided I am not a fighter anymore. I wanna do something different. So it sounds scary to us of, oh my gosh, I might have to lose my vocation, but that's only if your vocation isn't actually serving you, like mine wasn't. Great job, just didn't love it though. His was a great job, but he wasn't happy. So now he's doing things that are aligned with bliss and heart-led, like genuine, you know, connection rather than something that we knew we were good at, but wasn't, wasn't actually fulfilling. The ancient Greeks who created the mystery school experience of connecting with consciousness and who arguably were the first to work with psychotropic medicines to yeah. do this, okay? They, the, in ancient Greek, the word for sacrament, which we hold is the word for the medicine itself, the word sacrament didn't just mean the medicine you were consuming, but your commitment to it. Mm. What are you giving back? And in my culture that I studied, there's the word aini, which means reciprocity. We have lost that in the Western world. We're just taking, we're taking cultural traditions. We're taking the medicines themselves. Like we, we don't necessarily mean harm by this, but my ask of everyone who's called to be a part of this, this movement is don't just take the incredible benefits of the medicine, give back and give back in two ways to the people, the traditions that have protected them and are now, as you say, at risk in all kinds of ways. Give back, support them, and also make sure you're doing your part to get the plants back in the ground too, so that our future generations can remember who they are. Now, if we do those two things, I feel like the cultural appropriation conversation just sort of dissolves because then we're showing up we're in up. honor of the history and the plants and the traditions. And we can say things like tribe. We can be a part of this because we're coming in with reverence and giving and not just taking. This is a very special episode, much like the one that I did with my dear friend George Hahn about James Bond, where we're taking something of pop culture and putting it under the smart, funny, tortured lens. And in honor of the release of Black Panther Wakanda Forever, I was having a conversation with a guest that we have today who's going to be helping us with this, MC McDonald. MC is a PhD trauma researcher 
professor and life coach and has three books on trauma. And we were talking about disclosing trauma in new relationships. And she used an analogy and called in Captain America, talking about the brain is Captain America and the trauma response is the shield. And then all of a sudden we realize that the entire MCU is based in trauma and started laughing about it. And then I really thought about it. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a discussion. So that's what we're going to do today. And that's where this came from. And then in order to make this discussion even more robust and entertaining and thoughtful, I'm bringing back humorist, urbanist, sartorialist, satirist, and, and frankly, the greatest ambassador to New York City since Gershwin, for God's sake, George Hahn. <laughs> <laughs> And so we got and, MC and we got George. And my new publicist. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> there you go. That, that tagline better show up on social now. Um, Paul Chamberlain, my new publicist. Thank you. Okay, everyone. So here are the ground rules. Obviously, we are not talking about the entire pantheon of MCU movies. We are confining this to Infinity War, Endgame, Bringing in WandaVision for a very special reason that we'll explain, and Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, which, just like we did with the James Bond episode, George, because of the spoilers, we'll hang our thoughts on Wakanda Forever towards the end of this. And we'll give everybody fair warning that we're going to be talking about it because, boy, that one blew the bell curve on talking about trauma in the MCU. So here we go. Ready, guys? Ready. Ready. Okay. I think. <laughs> I am consistently with each of these movies moved by, you know, the desire to be, you know, the, des the struggle rather, I should say, because it's not always a desire. It doesn't always manifest that way, but the struggle to be better, mm. the struggle to be better. These are damaged people. We are all damaged people. Hence, you know, going back to that, identifying with these people that I talked about in varying degrees. And these very damaged people managed to make, <laughs> I'll say it again, lemons out of lemonade or lemonade <laughs> out of lemons. Um, and we should all hope to do that. Instead of staying, like the takeaway is, instead of staying stuck and saying, well, <sighs> I'm stuck with this situation and then just uh, reclining into it or uh, whether it's a disease or an ailment or a financial situation or a professional or personal romantic setback, pick one. I don't care. Fill in the blank. I had to go through blank. Okay. What'd you do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I think about my stepdad who got a diagnosis back in 2005 with multiple myeloma or 2006 mm. and carried it for nine years and made a decision. This is not going to define, this is not going to, you know, I don't want to say define me, but he was more defined by um, what he wanted to do, I guess, you know, and what I could never figure out is that when I would ever, whenever I would call a member of my family, when Bob was still alive, he died in 2015, when Bob was still alive, and we would all have things to whine about in our own lives, consistently, 
Bob was always the most cheerful when he picked up the phone. The guy with cancer, the guy who buried a wife, the guy who buried a daughter was consistently the most the most cheerful. The guy who was was issued or dealt, a, you know, to some people, a lousy hand and chose to not let that be not let that, you know, limit him. Mm. And he which went on him, anyway, which made him aspirational. A hundred percent. It makes him a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so there's something in there for all of us. And I, you know, if people want to write them off, oh, they're just stupid men in tights movies. Fine. I get it. I understand why someone would think that. There's so much more going on with these. MC, what happens in the real world? Because we can't mm. act. It, we would love to, but we're mm. constrained by morality, by law, by parameters. Mm -hmm. You know, we, the real world just doesn't work like mm -hmm. that. So what happens to that trauma when we can't? Revenge, when we can't. Yeah. 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 Um, I think this actually showed up in Endgame in two places. And so I think that, you know, the short answer is we find meaning in the death, in the aftermath. And I'm trying not to talk about Wakanda forever at the moment, but um, I'm thinking of the therapy scene, right? With Steve Rogers and the kind of the beginning-ish uh -huh. of um, Endgame where he says, you know, he's sitting with this therapy group of all these people who have been affected by the snap. And he's like, you gotta move on, you gotta move on. The world is in our hands. We gotta do something with it. Otherwise Thanos should have killed all of us. That's it. That's those little brave baby steps we got to take to try and become whole again, try and find purpose. I went in the ice in 45 right after I met the love of my life. I woke up 70 years later. You got to move on. You got to move on. The world is in our hands. It's left to us, guys. And we gotta do something with it. Otherwise, Thanos should have killed all of us. Right, so mm. it's this kind of, this acceptance and recognition that we are here and we've gotta do something. We've gotta find some meaning, we've gotta, and it's hard to figure out what that is. And I think it, it kind of comes at a particular stage of grief, but I think that's the thing that's the sort of the healthy thing that to do when we can't have um, when we can't have revenge. Make lemonade. Yeah. My guest today is a fascinating and dynamic woman who, at first glance, her career track from then to now could be seen as a massive divergence, but upon closer examination. And talking with her, her evolution is both logical and beautiful. She was a Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney for 14 years, where she specialized in sex crimes, child abuse, and domestic violence cases. Today, she serves women as an intimacy coach and educator. She is also a TEDx speaker and author who happily embraces her mission to help women love their bodies experience deep intimacy, and have great sex, shame-free. My name is Paul Chamberlain, and this is Smart, 
funny, tortured with Rena Martin. What are the true elements that are needed for pleasurable and authentic sex? Yeah, I, I think it really does come down to authenticity. It's showing up as your true self. Yeah. That's required for great sex. And it's also required for intimacy, whether that's platonic, professional intimacy, or, or romantic or sexual intimacy. It's showing up because there are plenty of folks out there who can get drunk and have a porn style hot, you know, one night stand with somebody. But oftentimes they're playing a role. They're not actually yeah. showing up as, as their true selves. So when I see women who say, oh yeah, I can have really hot sex with strangers, but put me in a long-term relationship and I clam up, that to me is a telltale sign that there's a lack of intimacy, that there's a lack of vulnerability there. So the, the easiest hack is you got to show up as your true self. You've got to be honest with yourself and then with your, with your prospective partners about what it is that you're looking for and stop playing games, stop hiding behind a mask of who you think you're supposed to be, how women are supposed to behave, how, how men, how humans are supposed to behave and just show up. Is there any other best practices for this that we haven't covered for pursuing E&M or Pauling? Well, I mean, talking about there's so much talking, Paul, like in case, in case you haven't realized that yeah. I like to talk about the five W's, which right. are the five W's that we all know who, what, when, where, and why talk to your partner ahead of, ahead of time. Like, okay, who, who is on the table? Yeah. Are we talking about, you can go hook up with your coworker after happy hour drinks. Are we talking about, we only play together. Um, what's on the table. Mm -hmm. So say we're talking about a threesome. Okay. Our, is intercourse allowed the first time with, with you and the new party, just with us, with anyone? Um, when, okay. When can this happen? Can this happen when we're together? Can it happen separately? Can it happen only when we're out of the state or one of us is, you know, traveling to a different County, different country, different city where also can be, is this happening in our family home? Yeah. Is this happening in a hotel room or at a play party? But the why is the most important. Mm. Why do I want to do this? And is this a deal breaker for me if we can't? If we can't mm. get on the same page, is this so fundamental to who I am as a person that I feel like I won't be living my authentic self? and and embodying the full range of my sexual expression if I cannot do this. And that'll do it. Thank you so much for listening. And please check out the episodes in full wherever you get your podcasts under Smart Funny Tortured. Anything else you want to know about me? the podcast, and my coaching, go ahead and visit smartfunnytortured.com. You can also find me on Instagram at smartfunnytortured. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Also, feel free to drop me a line. Either DM me through Instagram or you can get me through the website. And that is it for 2022. I hope in 2023 you find your people, you find your pleasure, you find your purpose, and you find your peace. 
Happy New Year, everyone. Take care.